1: welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 131. Bienvenidos, bitches! And muy <laughs> thank you for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cis, white dudes it's true they're not i'm foaming at the mouth there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and fruit loops it's a podcast all about them we will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and those victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is
2: racist Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a Black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth. And I just happen to be white. It's not her fault. <laughs> <laughs> We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to Pod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode.
1: <laughs> and if you're new here thanks uh our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website plus check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a fruitloops
2: patron so yeah hope- Are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about James Edward Swan Jr., a.k.a. the Shotgun Stalker. He's a Black American male serial killer. He killed four people and injured five with, you guessed it, a shotgun. <laughs> and this subject was suggested to us by our patron, Alia. Yeah, if we're, if we're pronouncing it wrong, we apologize. But yes, we Thank try. you so much for this suggestion yes. because I had never you. heard of this case
1: Me, before. Me neither. But before we get into it. How you doing?
2: I'm doing good. Uh, over our break, I got to go see my daughter and my grandson in North Dakota. And uh, we also got some cool opportunities for the pod. So, Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to also mention that we're going to be doing another live show at the She Podcasts convention in Scottsdale on October 15th. That's right. So definitely check that out. Y'all come see us, you hear? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yes, the break was very
1: nice. Um, Trying to think, what did I do? Uh, Work. Yeah, (laughs) we took a break off the pod, but I still have my full-time job. (laughs) (laughs) Still had miles to feed. Hello, somebody. (laughs) Um, um, but yeah, it was over the month of August, um, and just uh, took the time to sort of revamp a couple things, clean up some things, and again, um, man. Who would have thought that when we started this show, I used to record in the garage. I used to record in the laundry room. In your car. Well, now in my car. I've moved yeah. up to the stu- to to my closet. But closet studios. Uh, <laughs> closet studios. <laughs> but uh it is so fun to just be a part of something that uh ooh, we've believed is really special. And we're excited to see where it's growing. We're excited you're here with us. We thank you. And we love you. I don't have anything else to say. So now let's get into some (laughs) listener letters. (laughs) Uh, Hello. Oh, hello, angels. Thank you. Oh, look at that bag. (laughs) Look at that bag. What's in the bag, Beth?
2: (laughs) Well, I wanted to say thank you, Alexis, for your five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Oh, yes. It really helps. And if you can't afford to join our patrons, giving us a five-star review is a way that you can help our little pod without spending anything. Right? (laughs) Thank you so much, Hip Hop Air Horns. Thank you. (laughs) What else is in that bag? Well, Bailey Kathleen shared something in our Facebook discussion group at the beginning of our break about AAVE, African-American Vernacular English, formerly known as Ebonics, and tut languages. Bailey said, I need a Culture Corner including this. And now you got it, boo. (laughs) Hell
1: yeah. (laughs) Welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth.
2: All right. So we've talked about AAVE
1: on the show many times before, but Tut was new to us. And hello, I'm back from the rabbit hole. Now, Tut (laughs) is a form of English invented in the 18th century by black enslaved people in the southern United States of America. It was used to help them learn to read and write at a time when literacy was banned among slaves. Uh, It could get you killed or your arms or legs chopped off or all kinds of terrible things. And also used as a secret language. Each letter is replaced by a word beginning with the sound of the letter. Um, tut or Tutanese is also used as a language game. And there is a very similar language game known as Yuckish or Yukish. not sure how to pronounce it, which is played in parts of the United States. Huh. And it was a language mostly forgotten, but has seen a resurgence thanks to t- talk my favorite Uh, and it's really interesting and cool so thank you bailey yeah uh, for that culture corner subject (laughs) and you're not gonna believe this but we got more patrons during the break (laughs) Uh, we got some like mind-boggling Donations, donations via Kofi yeah. and the Cash App, um, and again, new Patreons. We are so grateful for all of you. We are doing exciting things with the pod, and it would all be impossible <laughs> without you. So yeah. we are so yeah. grateful. So, um, first, Angela H, Elizabeth H, Jessica B, Jesse, and Anne Marie. So here are your tunes. Angela, you should know that you are really special Oh-ah, oh-ah, oh I, oh, I, oh, I, oh I. Angela, you should know that you are really special Oh-ah, 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 oh-ah You're favorite girl <laughs> Okay, hip-hop air horns too, Angela, thank you Yeah, thank you Okay, Elizabeth, here is your tune. I hope you don't hate it. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Okay. Times are hard and you're afraid to pay the fee. But thank goodness for Fruities who show love to Beth and me. (laughs) Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Thanks so freaking much, Elizabeth. whoa. Whoa. (laughs) Are you serious, Elizabeth? Hell yeah. <laughs> and that's that's what we said to each other when we got the donation. So thank you. Are you serious? Hell yes. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, Jessica, this is for you. Well, 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 you. Jessica, we can't part without you. Ooh. Ooh, 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 ooh. Well, listen to this. Ow! <laughs> Good one. <laughs> Thank you, okay, Jesse, this is for you. It's a whole lot of Jesse in this motherfucker. Mm. It's a whole lot of Jesse in this motherfucker. Mm. Okay. <laughs> and this last one, boy, this is tough. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. And Marie. And marie (laughs) patriot, I'll put on in a day or two. Thank you all so much. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Okay, so uh, let's get into it. Now, we've been on a little break. We don't do this every episode, but we do think it's uh, important to say before we get into our episode, we want to say this is a podcast about true crime and people of color. True crime is difficult to talk about Uh, or hear about sometimes and race can be too, but we're all just part of the, it's just part of the world that we live in. And as global citizens, we all get to talk about this stuff and we want this to be a safe space where we can have discussions about all of the things. And we are all learning all the time Sometimes we make mistakes, but we, you know, cop to it. We learn from it and we keep it moving on our collective quest to be our best sexy
2: selves. Amen. And uh, yeah, we welcome our listeners to be a part of the discussion on Facebook or Twitter at Fruit Loops Pod or email us at Fruit Loops Pod at gmail.com. All right. So we're going to take a quick break and we're going to get into the story when we come back.
1: All right, we're back. Remind us, Beth... Who is our subject again?
2: Well, we're talking about James Edward Swan Jr., a.k.a. the Shotgun Stalker. He terrorized Washington, D.C.'s Columbia Heights and Mount Pleasant neighborhoods over two months in 1993. He killed four people and wounded five in 14 different attacks. This is, I feel inappropriate to
1: say, but I'm going to say it anyway.
2: The movie <laughs> Candyman came
1: out, uh-huh. and the whole time I was looking into this case, I was like, this would be a good like movie oh you know? yeah. Like, can't, yeah like a good horror movie yeah um, the unfortunate thing is it is real life it's true so yeah. um you know
2: what it is a
1: real life horror movie it is though. a real life horror movie and I am not a real journalist investigator or psychologist or movie maker <laughs> uh so forget everything I just said anyway let's get into some stats <laughs> All right. The spree began on February 23rd, 1993, until Swan was arrested on April 19th, 1993. We are going to name the victims. Uh, there are four of them. Uh, murder victims and there are nine people who were injured but ended up surviving the victims varied in age sex ethnicity and occupation there was no pattern which is terrifying yeah uh rest in power to julius jack bryant who was 58 elizabeth betsy hudson 28 edwin fleming was 35 nello hughes was 61 now, the crimes took place over eight weeks in 1993 in Washington, uh, our two different Washington neighborhoods of the city of Washington, D.C. Not Washington State, bitches. Nope. The city had 453 homicides the year before. And I remember this time of year when Washington was like the murder capital of the United States. Oh, yeah. You remember that? Yeah, I do. 80% of the murders uh, in the in the year 1992, before this all took place, were with handguns. And the mayor at the time was a Black woman. Woman, her name was Sharon Pratt Kelly, and she was a Howard University alum. Cool. So now
2: we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. James Edward Swan Jr. grew up in New Jersey. New Jersey has some one hundred and thirty miles of Atlantic coast, and the Swans lived mostly on the coast. New Jersey is majority white, and two of the places where we know that the Swans lived in Lakewood and Ocean Township are very white. Over 80%.
1: (laughs) Woo! I can imagine you might run into a Karen or two there. Uh, (laughs) The first people to live on the land known as New Jersey were the Lenape or Delaware tribe. Anywhere from 8,000 to 20,000 Lenape lived in the area when Europeans first came and did what they do. (laughs) Although they were considered one tribe, the Lenape didn't act as one unified group. Instead, they lived in small communities made up mostly of extended family members. In
2: 1609, Henry Hudson sailed through Newark Bay. Although Hudson was British, he worked for the Netherlands. So he claimed the land for the Dutch and it was called New Netherlands. Small trading colonies sprang up from where the present towns of Hoboken and Jersey City are now located. The Dutch, Swedes, and Finns were the first European settlers in New Jersey. Bergen, founded in 1660, was New Jersey's first permanent European settlement. European settlement. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, <laughs> I was just thinking 1660. Uh, it's about time, y'all. Get, we, we could give the land back, No. What do you say? You've had it long enough. Anyway, from its founding, New Jersey's population also included enslaved Africans. The exact date when enslaved people first arrived in New Jersey is unknown, but probably before 1664. Um, Perhaps 1619, as the New York Times told us in the 1619 project. Ah,
2: okay. In 1664, the Dutch lost New Netherlands to the British when they took control of the land and added it to their colonies. The land was then officially named New Jersey after the Isle of Jersey in the English Channel. The Quinpartite deed of 1676
1: divided the New Jersey colony into two provinces, East Jersey and West Jersey. Each province was independent, independently governed and passed laws specific to the region. But they're so close to each other, how different could they be? <laughs> West Jersey's <laughs> charter added a provision that stated... All and every person and persons inhabiting said province shall, as far as in us lies, be free from oppression and slavery. Okay, I get it now. It's different. (laughs) It's different. Yeah.
2: (laughs) East Jersey's charter didn't include any anti-slavery provision. And in 1695, East Jersey passed a law providing for the establishment of a separate court comprised of two justices of the peace and 12, quote, men of the neighborhood, unquote, to exclusively try and punish enslaved people who committed felonies or murder.
1: That sounds really horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. For a number of reasons, but I got to keep the episode going. Now, before <laughs> 1695, enslaved people were likely being tried in the same court as white people. Free white people were usually punished with fines or imprisonment. But since enslaved people couldn't own property and being imprisoned would have deprived the owner of their services, <laughs> woo-hoo, a different system focusing on corporal punishment was established.
2: For example, enslaved people who stole livestock or other provisions were tried by two justices of the peace with no jury, I wonder how those things. Came uh, out. I, yeah, uh, <laughs> 100% guilty. A hundred percent conviction rate. Yeah, their master was to reimburse the value of the stolen goods as well as pay the fee for a public whipping mm. of not more than forty lashes.
1: That just sounds horrifying, and I'm yeah. immediately
2: like taken back to the
1: picture of that enslaved man. Is his name Samuel or Samson? Um, but when Twelve Years a Slave came out, right. Man, I just ugh, ugh. Um, yeah, but look,
2: their backs are just torn just up,
1: torn yeah. up to shreds. So, in 1702, East and West Jersey became unified. In 1704, the Jerseys produced a comprehensive slave code entitled "quote <clears throat> an Act for Regulating Negro, Indian, and Mulatto Slaves within this Province of New Jersey." unquote.
2: This act banned any buying or selling to enslaved people and Hmm. ordered the whipping of any enslaved person found more than 10 miles from their master's home. It also declared that enslaved people from other provinces present in New Jersey without written license from their masters were to be whipped and jailed. Do you know what this sounds
1: like? Uh, I mean, literally, this is written into um, law. Right. Uh, But it sounds like all the videos we see on Instagram. of black people minding their own business in a neighborhood or somewhere where a white person doesn't believe they belong.
2: Right, and they call 911. Right, call 911. There's there's a prime person in my neighborhood. Exactly,
1: they're too far away from their master's home or where I believe they belong. Um, And kind of, you know, People who say, ah, that happened so long ago, this, this this was written in 1704. Yeah. Um, but we're in 2021 and I just saw it All on that Instagram kind of shit. Yeah. today. Uh so in 1713 and 14, the slave code was amended to say that any master who wanted to free an enslaved person had to pay two hundred pounds every year for their support and maintenance. All of those codes were obviously intended to discourage the freedom of enslaved people.
2: Yeah. In 1776, New Jersey declared itself an independent. State and joined the colonial side in the Revolutionary War. New Jersey was an important state during the Revolutionary War because of its location near the center of the 13 colonies and between New York City and Philadelphia. More revolutionary battles were fought in New Jersey than in any other state, which I did not know that. Didn't know that either. Very fascinating. But I'm also feeling a Hamilton tune coming
1: on because I saw (laughs) 1776. (laughs) I'm going to refrain. I will relax. New Jersey grew and prospered during the early 1800s, but pro-slavery sentiment remained strong in the state and central New Jersey depended on enslaved people for labor well into the 19th century. By 1832, two-thirds of the remaining enslaved people in northern states were located in New Jersey. And New Jersey was the last of the northern states to abolish slavery completely. And for all of your friends
2: who say, we didn't have slavery in the north,
1: they're wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Wrong. Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) After the Civil War, the Industrial Revolution was underway and New Jersey continued to grow. Railroads were laid to connect the cities and to transport materials. More factories opened and cities got bigger. Europeans came by the thousands to New Jersey to work in the factories. We should also say that rail- railroads
1: were also built by people who were not white. People couldn't be bothered, right. so uh, right. it wasn't just black enslaved people. It was um, a-, a lot of Asians um, who contributed to the railroads, the railways that we see today. Yeah. Uh, in 1910, half the state's population was born or had parents who were born outside of the United States. New Jersey's black population also grew rapidly in the 20th century, during the Great Migration and Second Great Migration from 1910 to 1970. And as city populations grew, farm populations shrank.
2: In the early 1950s, the cities of New Jersey began experiencing urban decay. New Jersey's suburbs were growing and advertisements portrayed them as idyllic places that were easy to get to by automobile. (laughs) Automobile. Automobile. No,
1: it's just funny that, um, you know, now now at, during COVID time, people desire to live in a place that you has walkability. Right. 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 Um, Completely
2: opposite of what people wanted back then. Right.
1: Yeah. As black people moved from the south into New Jersey cities, real estate agents stoked fears that homes would lose their value. (laughs) Prompting white people to sell and move out redlining also discouraged white people from moving into cities and kept black people from moving out, and prevented people from getting loans so that yeah, they could yeah. move anywhere.
2: Yeah. Right. According to Max Herman, a professor of sociology and anthropology at New Jersey City University, quote, the federal government subsidized the growth of suburbs while neglecting cities and it was racialized in the sense that low interest mortgages were made available to white people and new housing was made available to white people and these These opportunities were not available to black people, unquote. Real estate
1: blockbusting was also used. It wasn't just a movie store. Real (laughs) estate blockbusting was also used as a means to get white people to sell their homes at low prices by convincing them that marginalized people will soon be moving into their neighborhoods. They used some pretty shady practices like hiring black women to walk down the street walking a dog or pushing a baby carriage in order to convince white people that black people were moving in. Oh, Mm.
2: no. There goes the
1: neighborhood, Sue. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Once the white people sold, they would flip the home and sell to a black family or other marginalized group at higher prices and higher interest rates. And they would use that sale to convince other homeowners that the neighborhood was changing rapidly and then seek to buy those homes at even lower prices. We're not sure where the Swans started out. But while James Jr. was growing up, they lived in
1: the suburbs in majority white areas. Growing up in these areas has to have been isolating for James Swan Jr. Um, Yeah. No. Yeah. I I, no doubt that it was not uh, easy to be in a PWI. uh, Welcome to Culture Corner. That's predominantly white institution or space.
2: Oh, PWI. didn't know that one. James Swan Jr. committed his crimes in Washington, D.C. The city was known for decades as the Chocolate City. Oh, yes. To many Black Americans. Historic, yes. Because it was predominantly Black. Most big U.S. cities are getting browner as more Blacks, Latinx, and Asians move in. D.C., by contrast, fell to just 53% Black in 2009 down from a peak of 71% in 1970.
1: The phenomenon is occurring partly because D.C. has quickly become one of the most expensive cities in America, and it was one of the only cities in the United States where property
2: values continued to rise despite the economic downturn in the aughts. As we mentioned in 1970, Black Washingtonians comprised 71% of the district, but that number had fallen to 49% by 2000, 2011, and the percentage of Black residents has continued to decline since then. Interestingly, as the district has become less Black,
1: the surrounding suburbs have grown significantly less white. From 2000 to 2016, more than a quarter of low-income people who lived in district neighborhoods
2: experiencing economic expansion were displaced to the suburbs. The shootings occurred in two D.C. neighborhoods, Mount Pleasant and Columbia Heights. Mount Pleasant is upscale and ethnically diverse, and it was even more ethnically diverse in the 90s. Today, it's about 50 percent white. In 1990, it was about 35 percent white, 36 percent black and 26 percent Latinx. That's almost perfect.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of everything. I mean, that sounds like chef's kiss uh (laughs) quite the recipe for flavor right uh Columbia Heights is majority black and was even more so in 1990, when only about 3% of residents were white. In 1968, following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr.,
2: riots broke out in Columbia Heights and many other Washington neighborhoods to the east. Many middle-class residents then moved out to the suburbs, resulting in a drop in business. As a result, many homes and shops remained vacant for decades. Some remaining residents could not afford to move and struggled with with problems of poverty and violence related to drugs. Today, Columbia Heights is rapidly gentrifying. Uh,
1: In addition to Black people, the neighborhood has a large Latinx population, but the white population is also growing. So now we're going to get into the early life of the shotgun stalker. What do you got for us, Beth?
2: Well, James Edward Swan Jr. was born in 1964. He had at least one sibling, a sister. He may have had more, but I don't know about them. <laughs> <laughs> But we know about the one sister. There we go. His father, James Swan Sr., was a retired U.S. Navy vet and a Treasury Department employee, and he worked as a security guard at a federal facility in D.C. According to Raymond Patterson, a psychiatrist
1: who later examined him, James Jr. began abusing alcohol at age Eight. That's really young. Very young. Must have been uh something uh very go- not good not good. He yeah. also beat dogs. Wait a minute, he's checking all the serial killer boxes before we <laughs> even get to the end. He also beat dogs and once threw a cat off a roof of a building. James Jr. also liked to picnic alone. What's wrong with that?
2: You ask. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know what's wrong with that. <laughs> and he thought
1: that he could talk to birds and would chirp at them.
2: James Jr. attended middle school in Lakewood, New Jersey in the mid-1970s. In 1978, the Swans moved about 80 miles north to Ocean Township, New Jersey, where James Jr. attended high school from 1978 to 1982.
1: Can you imagine the fashion and the hairstyles?
2: (laughs) Now, his years in school were uneventful.
1: In high school, James Jr. was on the freshman football and track teams, and he played basketball until his graduation in 1982. Although he had poor grades. He mostly got C's and D's in his classes. He was not a discipline problem and did not draw attention to himself.
2: After graduating from high school, James Jr. was convicted of a drug offense in 1985, but he did not receive any jail time. At some point, his parents separated, and for a couple of years, James Jr. moved back and forth between his mother's apartment in Island, New Jersey, and his father's apartment in Rahway, about 10 miles away. James Jr.'s mother, June Swan, said that James Jr. began
1: showing obvious signs of mental illness in the 80s and that it grew worse as the decades progressed. She said that they tried desperately to persuade him to seek professional help, but he refused.
2: In 1987, James Jr. joined the Navy with the job of operating and maintaining the boilers on a ship. His time with the Navy was not noteworthy, and he was denied even routine promotions. In 1990, after three years, he was discharged at the military's second lowest pay grade. Oh, wow.
1: Um, I was going to say military service is something a lot of serial killers have in common. Yes. You no know, OG of true crime? Now, uh, in 1990, <laughs> he moved in with his sister and his nephew at an Oxon Hill, Maryland apartment complex located just outside of Washington, D.C. He was hired and fired by two security companies in little more than a year. Neighbors remembered him as a strange man who rarely spoke to them, frequently paced the sidewalk muttered to himself and shouted angrily at squirrels me too i hate squirrels i hate animals with small mouths don't trust them
2: i love squirrels oh my god i hate squirrels and birds
1: no 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 you know how much damage those little Uh, mouths
2: could do yeah true but we don't have a lot of squirrels here okay in the valley yeah That's true. I usually only see them in the woods, and and I don't care if they want to do some damage to. Uh, Let me tell you something else.
1: They're so disrespectful. (laughs) They are. That's true. They're not afraid of people. They, well, Do you know how scary that is <laughs> to be like a large human being with opposable thumbs and this little son of a bitch doesn't <laughs> care?
2: Well, it's because well the the ones that are not afraid of people are used to getting fed mm. by people. So y'all,
1: y'all got to stop that. Yeah. You got to stop that.
2: <laughs> James Jr. exhibited increasingly bizarre behavior and at work and at family gatherings. He would sometimes burst into laughter for no apparent reason. He was fired from one security guard job because he insisted on walking backward while patrolling the aisle of a drugstore. Okay. I don't see the problem
1: in that, uh, <laughs> but okay, <laughs> whoever the boss is, this sounds like a made-up rule, not a allowed, what, not no allowed dancing to, either, to no dancing on the no job, no dancing, no, Jeez. gotta be serious, man. Oh. <laughs> Nah, I would be. I would have been fired too. Anyway, one coworker <laughs> remembered him as the butt of jokes among the other guards. He recalled one occasion at work when he saw James Jr. pretending to drive his desk like a car and, quote,
2: waving his hands around.
1: I couldn't figure out what he was doing, unquote. <laughs>
2: <laughs> now, I do stuff like that, so. Oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> I, I sometimes will, like, have a whole conversation in my head and accidentally blurt out, Part of it, and look around. Like I hope nobody heard me or saw. And then I'll like cough, like <laughs> pretend like you know it was a, a weird sneeze or ailment or yeah, some... that wasn't me. Yeah, <laughs> who?
2: <laughs> so what, we had a coworker for about a year she just recently left the company and uh-huh. uh she and i would get really goofy <laughs> yeah i remember hearing your laughter over there <laughs> <laughs> yeah we would dance and do all kinds of crazy stuff so you know I could see myself pretending to drive my desk like a car.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Drive your desk like a car, then you pretend to go downstairs, then you pretend to ice skate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a whole
2: thing. Yeah, what's what's the big deal? Uh, Where are we? (laughs) In 1992, James Jr. purchased a shotgun from an Oxon Hill Kmart store. In 1993, after an argument with his sister, he moved out of her apartment. He then drifted between New Jersey, Philadelphia, and Washington, apparently living in his car. James Jr. later said that he began to hear voices in his head in early
1: 1993. The voices demanded that he shoot people in northwest Washington. And when he tried to resist the voices demands, the voices threatened to kill
2: him. Yikes. No, please don't. We don't know how true this is, but according to one source, he first went to the area where he would later start his shooting spree when a co-worker took him to the Columbia Heights Safeway Barbershop for a haircut. Hmm. Reportedly, the co-worker made fun of him while they were on a job, and afterwards, James Jr. went to the same barbershop repeatedly looking for that co-worker.
1: Oh, Wow. Uh, So on February 6th, 1993, just a few weeks before the first shooting, Prince George's County Police questioned Swan about his possible involvement in an incident in the county and seized his shotgun. The gun was returned a few days later when no charges were filed. Prince George's County is in Maryland, right outside of Washington, D.C.,
2: right so now we're going to get into the timeline hit it beth in early 1993 a series of drive-by shootings left dc residents afraid to leave their homes from february 23rd to april 19th 1993 the streets of two dc neighborhoods columbia heights and mount pleasant were terrorized by a random shooter who would drive up to pedestrians aim a 20-gauge shotgun at their heads and fire wow and not in a joking fashion, no, so
1: the first not at all. nope <laughs> this is not funny one bit. I I you know, you could have been like, "Okay, so he's kind of a goofball, right? waving and driving a car at his desk, walking backwards, dancing in the drugstore aisles, but pointing a shotgun at somebody's head. now you got too not- far.
2: Not funny. Yeah. So the
1: first area to be hit was Columbia Heights, where four incidents took place in less than two weeks. The attacks began at about 8.45 p.m. on February 23rd, 1993, when a man pointed a shotgun out of the driver's side window of a small blue car and fired at, but missed, a woman
2: walking on Holmead Place Northwest. The woman called police, but they didn't take the matter very seriously. They decided that the gun had probably been a pellet or BB gun, that the perpetrators were teenage vandals, the target was a window, and the woman just happened to be nearby.
1: All right, as officers were interviewing the first victim, the stalker struck again. But the officers speaking to the woman
2: had turned their radios down for their interview and were unaware of the second shooting. Approximately fifteen to twenty minutes after the The first shooting, a 22-year-old man was walking in the Columbia Heights region of D.C. when a driver in a blue Toyota Tercel pulled up to him and shot him with a shotgun. The young man survived the attack but suffered severe injuries. He lost one eye and suffered significant
1: damage to the other. He was to have started a new job a week after he was
2: shot, but the shooting left him partially blind with limited use of his arm and no sense of smell. Because this victim was young, male, and black, police officers dismissed this as an ordinary drug turf dispute, Okay. despite the victim's denials that he was involved in drug dealing. Detectives investigating the shooting did not even learn about the earlier shooting on Holmead Place for another month.
1: Yikes. OK, so they're not doing that great of a job. No. Uh, now, three days later, on February 26th, a masked man walked into a Columbia Heights Safeway barber shop and fired two rounds from his shotgun. The first blast killed 58 year old Julius Jack Bryant, striking him in the head as he sat in a barber chair.
2: Wow. The second struck a 68 year old man, injuring him. The shootings in the barbershop were not initially linked to the shotgun stalker. Investigators believe the shooting was part of a neighborhood feud. The barbershop shootings were also outside of what would become the shotgun stalker's MO. So even though a shotgun was used in the attack, it was different in that the shooter was not in a car targeting pedestrians. And this was during the day, broad daylight. Yes. I think so. I think so,
1: too. At this point, police didn't even know there was a shotgun stalker. But even when they did know, they didn't link this crime to that series. And a man named Vincent Singleton was arrested and charged in the barbershop shooting after two witnesses identified him as the shooter. The arrest further distanced the barbershop shooting from the stalker attacks.
2: On March 4th, the stalker returned, shooting another pedestrian on Homemade Place in Columbia Heights. The victim was Willie Gilchrist, a 43 year old man who was just walking down the street on his way to buy beer when he was shot in the head the shotgun blast left a baseball-sized wound on the right side of Gilchrist's head
1: but he survived and suffered no brain damage or other permanent complications surprise police were slow to connect the dots and again this attack was attributed to drug warfare
2: of course yeah. it's a black man I'm done so... they're all fired yeah <laughs> On March 17th, 1993, 23-year-old Hope Halleck was hit by shotgun pellets from a passing car, similar to the February 23rd shooting, but this time in rapidly gentrifying upscale Mount Pleasant. Police began to wonder if there was something exceptional taking place. Oh, now, now they're intrigued. Now, now they want to pay attention. Intrigued. Okay, yes. fuck you, messy-ass Because ass it's holes. a woman in Mount Pleasant.
1: Yep. Shootings and drug wars may be quote unquote normal in Columbia Heights, but that's not the case in Mount Pleasant. Still, they speculated that maybe the victim just happened to be standing in the crossfire between warning
2: drug gangs or I'm sorry, warring drug gangs. Then on March 23rd, exactly four weeks after the first shooting, the stalker struck again. It was a dark and rainy night in the D.C. neighborhood of Mount Pleasant, and Bessie Hudson, 28, was walking her dogs while wearing a bright yellow raincoat. This was on the far west end of Mount Pleasant, well away from any street gang disputes in Columbia Heights.
1: As she walked down an alley, Swan pulled up to her and shot her in the head with the shotgun. She died at the scene, face down in the alley. And for the first time, police realized that they had a random killer in the neighborhood, shooting innocent victims just going about their daily lives.
2: Police finally connected this series of shootings to that first incident on Holmead Place. Bessie and the other victims had been shot with a shotgun, which was unusual in a city where semi-automatic handguns were the weapons of choice.
1: On March 24th, police announced that the crimes were linked and turned over the investigation to the Red Rum Unit. Murder spelled in reverse. I remember that from The Shining. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, A task force of D.C. homicide detectives and federal drug agents. And yes. Oh, it was from The Shining by Stephen King. (laughs) What is this? You know. I am so bothered sometimes by police officers, you know, the other morning the SWAT team picked up one of my neighbors and they, there was like, it's just one guy in his house. I don't know what he does for a living. It's none of my business, but there was like 20 SWAT guys. I mean, it was like they were dressing up to go to a, to play police, right? It right. was so unnecessary, but they're so eager to be like Maverick from Top Gun or whatever the fuck right. Tom Cruise's yeah. name is in that movie that they, you know, they love the show. This stuff. The na- the yeah. names call me killer 10, four, you know, they make up names. They, they put on all the gear, all the costumes. It's like they're playing cops and robbers. Yep. Um. Yep.
2: But clearly uh, they're falling short in this case anyway. So, <laughs> 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 it was one of the biggest investigations in the department's history. Squads of detectives sifted again and again for clues at the shooting scenes. The Metropolitan Police stepped up patrols in the neighborhoods, and Chief Fred Thomas approved unlimited overtime for officers until the case was closed. Oh, wow. Scores unlimited.
1: unlimited. I like that sound of that, but that's not when it comes to work or labor. Uh, unlimited nachos. Unlimited drinks. Unlimited uh, massages. Hello. Uh, scores of patrol officers in uniform and street clothes patrolled Columbia Heights and Mount Pleasant round the clock, waiting for the stalker to make a mistake. Police urged residen- residents to stay indoors after dark. But the shootings continue.
2: On the night of April 4th, Lorinda Arrington was walking near her home in North Columbia Heights. She saw a car driving slowly down the street with the headlights off. She thought nothing of it, perhaps someone waiting to pick someone up. She began crossing the street and the car pulled up beside her. The man in the car said, Remember me? The man had a white cap on and a serious look on his face. She said, I don't know you.
1: She was still confused as the man aimed a shotgun at her head and pulled the trigger. As the shotgun fired, she shielded her face with her right arm. Her arm absorbed most of the blow and only a few pellets ended up in her neck.
2: But Lorinda's arm was torn up. Her elbow was beyond repair and had to be removed. Mm. Doctors were able to save the rest of her arm using a series of screws to hold the bones together. Lorinda was five months pregnant oh at the time God. of the shooting. Thankfully, her baby was unharmed. She later said, quote, I was glad I got to hold my baby with both arms, unquote. Wow, that is <laughs>
1: I'm without words again. On April 10th, Swan returned to Holmead Place, shooting at three pedestrians in the area in three different incidents, killing one, a 35-year-old man named Edwin Fleming, as he walked home from a rare night on the town.
2: His mother, Sally Fleming, later said she lives with regret that she never visited her gay son in the district, where he moved with his boyfriend eight years prior from his hometown of Clinton, South Carolina. She said, quote, We were very close, and I'd planned to come up in July to see his apartment and meet his friends, but none of that's going to happen now. It's sad. Yeah,
1: it's very sad. According to William O. Ritchie, then commander of the Metropolitan Police Department Criminal Investigations Division, quote, people were scared. People were looking over their shoulders, not going out at night. Street crime even dropped because nobody wanted to be out and be a potential target, unquote. And I read that the police were doing all this overtime and they they were staying out late patrolling. But as soon as they left, boop, pops up shotgun guy yeah
2: he was like watching them yeah
1: um so now we're gonna get into the investigation and the arrest
2: As police linked the incidents, they found similarities in location, time, and the description of the car and suspect. The gunman drove a greenish-blue Toyota Tercel with a dark driver's side door, slowly following some of his victims before rolling down the window and firing a shotgun. Police released details to the public on the car used in the attacks and developed a computer-enhanced sketch of the suspect
1: in the 90s, that's pretty cool, who was described as, quote, a black male in his late 20s to early 30s with sharp angular features, unquote. Posters were plastered around the neighborhood, and the Washington Post agreed to devote a half page of the paper to a large-scale print of the composite.
2: Wow. Yeah. That's something. The federal government also got involved. On April 15th, Attorney General Janet Reno visited an elementary school in Columbia Heights. During that visit, she told students and parents, quote, what we want to do is form a partnership on this particular case to do whatever we possibly can, unquote.
1: I was really young when Janet Reno was the attorney general. Um, right. But I remember her being made fun of on, like, TV a lot. Uh, uh, yeah,
2: I think on SNL they made fun of her a lot. Yeah.
1: Um, that's it. Then on April 19th, <laughs> two months after this, the first shooting, the stalker returned to Columbia Heights. Shortly after 1 p.m., shots rang out on Spring Place Northwest. The victim later told police, quote, I turned around and saw the driver leaning toward me, pointing something at me through the passenger side window. I ducked and heard a bang and felt ringing in my ear. Unquote. The shots shattered a window two houses away.
2: Moments later, the attacker turned onto Holmead Place and targeted a cyclist. When the man looked up and saw the shotgun, he dove off his bike and sprawled on the sidewalk behind a parked car. The blast went over his head. Seconds later, the stalker turned onto 13th Street and shot 61 year old Nello Hughes dead on the sidewalk. It was the stalker's fourth homicide.
1: I wonder, like, this must have happened in like minutes. Yeah, it did. Wow. Then police caught a break. Shortly after Nilo Hughes' shooting, off-duty police officer Kenneth Stewart, who had been on the scene of several of the shootings, spotted a greenish-blue Tercel driving erratically in the other direction. As the car passed, he noticed, quote, kind of a hippie smile or a happy smile on the driver's face. (laughs) Hippies. I don't know what a hippie (laughs) smile is, but okay.
2: Officer Stewart flipped a U turn and followed. The Tercel ran a red light and then turned into a parking lot. Officer Stewart, who was armed but in plain clothes, saw a police officer ahead of him at a streetlight. He pulled up to the officer, identified himself, and said, I think we got the shotgun stalker. Can you back me up? Wow. Officer Stewart
1: turned his vehicle around and saw the tracel starting to back out of the parking lot. Stewart blocked the tracel with his car and got out with his weapon. He told Swan to lay on the ground and that he was arresting him for the traffic violation.
2: But when he put the handcuffs on Swan, he said, quote, you know, this is not for traffic, unquote. Oh, the uniformed officer found a shotgun in the backseat of Swan's car. The barrel still warm. Whoa. Police on the scene said a crowd gathered as Swan was arrested.
1: An examination of shell casings linked the shotgun to the February 26th Columbia Heights Safeway barbershop killing of Jack Bryant. If you recall, another man. Vincent Singleton had been arrested for that murder. The murder charge against Singleton was dropped. I am relieved. Um,
2: So they got the guy. Now we're going to get into the trial. Swan told psychiatrists that he had been driven to the killings by voices in his head, including that of the ghost of Malcolm X who told him to kill people in Northwest Washington, the, quote, civil rights side of town, unquote, because they had been responsible for the civil rights leader's assassination in 1965.
1: When he says civil rights side of town, does he mean the black part?
2: I have no idea okay. what he exactly he means by that. I mean, a lot of what he said doesn't make any sense. So oh, I, right, yeah. I, he might mean the black side of town, but who knows? Yeah, yeah. Well, let's write him a letter for an interview and ask. Him. <laughs> just kidding. Uh,
1: Swan said the voices screamed at him and would only let up after he had shot someone. But even then, it was only for a few days. Quote, they would just keep chastising me and chastising me until it felt like my head was going to explode, unquote.
2: Swan thought that the voices in his head would kill him if he did not obey them. He said they squeezed his heart until he felt it was going to burst and pressured his rib cage until the pain was nearly unbearable. Now I've had panic attacks before,
1: and that's what it feels like, yeah, yeah, uh, sounds like yeah, sounds
2: like he was having panic attacks Mm -hmm.
1: swan chose his victims without regard to their race or sex in 13 of the 14 attacks he was in a car and he either shot at or threatened to shoot pedestrians walking alone most of the attacks were at night and nearly all occurred in a 10 (laughs) 10 block radius in the columbia heights and mount pleasant neighborhoods by the way uh there was an april 1st shooting did you not see no, that? No,
2: there was there was an April fourth shooting, and um, there were different accounts, so I didn't include that. Okay, but one of the stories was that um, he said fools, April Fourth. Yeah. And then shot her. But, um, I only found that in like one or two Uh articles Uh and the woman that he shot on April 4th, I think is the one that he shot in the arm. Oh, the one that was pregnant and in her account, it wasn't included. So, okay. I was, I, I, I mean, it could have been somebody else on April 4th, but I I couldn't verify it, so I I didn't include it.
1: Shout out to you, Beth, for being
2: thorough.
1: (laughs) Um, Because that's like, that's the part of the story that I'm going to remember forever. Unfortunately. I mean, Uh, it was
2: great. It was a great story. Yeah. I mean, I could. But I just don't know if it's true. I could see it
1: now. Wesley Snipes or Samuel L. Jackson playing the part.
2: Um, April Fool's bitch. Yeah. Uh, so, so, despite the ghost of Malcolm X, there was apparently nothing racial about the killings and almost all of Swan's victims were black. He used the 20 gauge shotgun that he had purchased at a Kmart in Oxon Hill a little under a year prior. According to forensic psychologist Raymond Patterson, after each of the shooting incidents, Swan would drive back to Harlem and stop on the way for a meal and to enlist the services of a sex worker. Now, this guy, uh, Raymond Patterson, he is also the one... Who said that uh, he had a drinking problem at the age of eight, and he beat dogs and threw a cat off a roof, and wait a minute, picnicked alone Is and all that he stuff? Being
1: hyperbolic, or yeah,
2: exaggerating. Um, I'm wondering if any of that's true <gasps> for effect to sell books. I don't know something, or he just. Uh, believed every single thing that Swan said, or I don't know, but this guy, this Raymond Patterson guy is the only one that said these things. So I don't know. I don't
1: know. Well, Beth, your Spidey sense has yeah, really, been spidey a, sense. It's really been a
2: godsend <laughs> in uh in real life. So um, my Spidey Sense says this guy is a little uh off-kilter. Okay.
1: In a DC Superior Court hearing, forensic <laughs> psychiatrist retained by both the defense and and prosecutors all agreed that swan was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia at the time of the attacks and after hearing testimony from the psychiatrists that inter- interviewed swan judge caller katoli ruled that Swan understood that what he was doing at the time of the shootings was wrong, but he was unable to control himself because he thought the voices in his head would kill him if he did not do what they told him to do.
2: The U.S. Attorney's Office did not dispute the contention by Swan's lawyers that his psychiatric disorder was so profound in the winter and spring of 1993 that he could not be held criminally responsible for the attacks. And I think that's very unusual.
1: I was just going to say that never happens yeah and it especially and it never happens to <laughs> black people right uh, right. so swan was declared not guilty by reason of insanity and judge colleen collar cautley gave the order to have swan confined to the maximum security unit of a psychiatric facility at saint elizabeth's hospital
2: Prosecutor Daniel S. Friedman said, quote, he was plainly not guilty by reason of insanity under D.C. law. All the doctors agreed. And we don't disagree with that finding. When all the doctors agree, there's no room for a trial and justice is served by the fair application of the prevailing legal standard, unquote.
1: Wow. um that also never (laughs) happens what is this is this some sort of joke where's ashton (laughs) kutcher are we being punked (laughs) never happens so afterwards swan's mother june swan said quote i'm just glad that it's over. If there was any way this could have been avoided, I would have done anything possible. I have those four people's families up in prayer every single day. That's all I can say. I've been a wreck since this started, unquote. So uh, now we're going to get into where are they now, as that's it for the story. What do you got, Beth?
2: Swan was confined to St. Elizabeth's Hospital. During his stay at St. Elizabeth, Swan earned an associate's degree for computer science, and he had plans of pursuing a bachelor's degree.
1: In 2011,
2: Swan applied for a
1: 12-hour furlough from the psychiatric hospital in order to visit his father and under his father's supervision. A psychologist testifying on his behalf said that he had reviewed Swan's records, which showed that Swan, quote, had not had a violent episode at the hospital since 2003, and his aggression with his psychosis was gone, unquote.
2: This psychologist felt that Swan was a, quote, low risk, end quote, of violence. However, as recently as 2008, Swan had still been suffering from hallucinations. And according to Assistant U.S. Attorney Colleen Kennedy, Swan's father had given him a T-shirt with the phrase, thrill to kill on it but why swan enjoy <laughs> wearing yeah <laughs> not good why did you do that sir <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> surviving victim hope halleck testified against his release and the request for a furlough was denied okay you know i feel like
1: weird a weird sense of resolve like yeah, yeah
2: that's what should yeah, happen that's that's yeah, yeah. it seems like Like uh, justice was served. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Speaking of how we feel about it, let's get into what
1: we think (laughs) made him snap and our takeaways.
2: (laughs) So uh, this guy clearly had mental health issues. Yeah. Which had never been which he'd never been treated for. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know why he did what he did. I mean, the voices told him to do it, but. The voices came from his head, and why did they want him to do it? I I don't know. It's it's Uh, weird.
1: It sounds like they were mad about what happened to Malcolm X.
2: Yeah, but why? (laughs) I mean, why Malcolm X? Why not uh, somebody else? I don't know. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I would would love to know why. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Why the voices mm-hmm, uh mm-hmm. wanted him specifically to go to those neighborhoods and and shoot people at random? Uh what's what's the point?
1: Yeah, and I mean <laughs> I I I wonder why more these maybe he's on a list to be studied but i do think his um being treated or locked away in a medical facility could be useful for the rest of us trying right. to figure out how these things happen what are you right. waiting for f- yeah. you know forensic psychology community
2: <laughs> <laughs> get on it <laughs> yeah So uh, this story was sad for for lots of reasons. Yeah, Um, His life was wasted. Mm -hmm. Uh, The victims that died, um, as well as the the ones who survived, the ones who were maimed. Yeah. Yeah. Their families, Mm -hmm. um, all of these people whose lives were affected, and even just the residents in D.C. who were not shot at, but who were terrified. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. Oh, I know. I mean, I have not got coronavirus, but I'm still scared.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I remember when the, the, those guys were driving around Phoenix shooting people Mm -hmm. and I I was scared. Yeah. It's the
1: idea. This could happen to anybody at any time. Not, Not
2: knowing it's completely random. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then also the uh, the whole mental health thing, um, yeah. even now, 28 years later, the U.S. still sucks at treating mental health issues. Oh,
1: yes. Yeah. Amen. You said it, sister.
2: <laughs> and uh, it's extremely difficult to get someone treatment, especially if they don't want it. Yeah. So, Yeah. you know. Yeah. Um,
1: I'm going to just say I agree with you. There are no winners in this case. Yeah. I mean... There are people who survived um, and I applaud them for their ability to do so. But this case, I think this kind of violence has lasting effects on um, communities, survivors, family members, everybody. There's just a lot of people left in this um, individual's wake. Yeah. yeah. Uh, And I was going to say this could be a stretch, but don't hate the player hate the game. And by player, I mean, all of us in the United States who need medical health care and mental health care. And for all of us who have to live in a society with too many guns in the hands of people who can get them too easily and shouldn't have them. And by game, I mean, hate the game, the systems in a society that allowed for all those things to happen. Um, Right, right. This also happened at the same time as the tragedy with the Branch Davidians in Waco, yeah. Texas. And it's uh, it's definitely um, it is an interesting, you know, conversation with regard to guns in America. Yeah. Um, yeah,
2: And there were some articles about that at the time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I yeah. That's uh, I was like, what? Branch Davidians? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh you mean the movie uh no I know what happened in real life but um anyway yeah uh you know there's a there's a lot of guns and they a lot of people uh have been hurt by them and not much has changed uh, with regard to the laws um, and how we treat uh, mental illness in the United States. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, it's a tragedy. Um, I'm struck by the fact that he had mental illness in the 80s and his black family, this is wild, acknowledged it and said they tried to get him help. And yeah. I wonder exactly what that looked like, you know, regardless of it's if it's, you know, trying to force him to go to church or trying to get him to get, you know, medication or talk to a therapist or uh, be institutionalized. I don't know what it looks like, but it is revolutionary to think about because mental health was not in the eighties and nineties openly talked about in black families or communities. And it's a little, little bit better now, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but it's, it's still not something that is openly talked about. Um, And the fact, that, you know, even the fact that it exists, that it's, that somebody is sick, um, you would, there's ways you don't even name it, um, in black families in black communities sometimes. Um, so I, I was just really, um, surprised by that. Um, and that's my thoughts.
0: to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to EvergreenPodcast.com/slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show.
1: So now we're gonna get into how not to get murdered. So if you
2: love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> This segment is not intended to be victim-blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences.
1: Um, well, all I got is head on a swivel, everybody. That's an oldie but goodie. And travel at night in well-lit areas. Uh, and not alone, if you can help it. And um, the, a big thing in this case is mental illness. Um, and we thought that it would, you know, a question, what do you do if somebody you care about might need mental health care or intervention? Um, first things first. Do not call the police unless it's life-threatening Yeah, um, because they they, can make things worse. They can make things a lot worse. Uh, And uh, we wanted to shout out SAMHSA, S-A-M-H-S-A's national helpline. It is free. It is confidential. It is available 24-7, 365 in its treatment referral uh, and an information service. And they have English and Spanish services for individuals and families facing and, uh, Uh, or Facing Mental and or Substance Use Disorder um, Matters. And that phone number is 1-800-662-HELP, H-E-L-P. That's 1-800-662-HELP. And their website is www.samhsa.gov. And we will put that information in our show notes. Yeah. So now we are going to hop on into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content. By or about any people of color, marginalized or othered groups, or any true crime goodies. I just got to say Reservation Dogs is yeah. fucking hilarious. Yeah, I it's great. love it. Now, if <laughs> if you don't know, here it is. It's a 30 minute comedy series on FX and Hulu uh, and shout out to Marlene. We love you, Marlene for letting yeah. us know about it. Like I've been, an- I've been anticipating this for months cause she told yeah. us about it. And uh, her,
2: I think it's her cousin, uh, Sterling Harjo, uh, who's a, Involved in this, um, I, yeah,
1: I, she mentioned that she's got relatives behind and in front of the camera,
2: right? Which right. is yeah. so
1: amazing. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait to like someday, like have a conversation with her about all that, like all this stuff, because it, it is just such a good show. And there might be like nuggets and Easter eggs that I'm completely missing. Oh yeah,
2: but you know, there's lots of stuff in there yeah. that is like even more hilarious to yeah, uh, indigenous people because it, yeah, we just don't we don't get it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I'm just,
2: did you watch the one, the one about the dad, the hip hop dad?
1: I don't think I saw that that one. One? No.
2: He has a a hip hop song. It's about fry bread. Oh, for real?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And I just, I know from personal experience, how meaningful it is to see yourself represented on TV um, yeah. and in media, and I just am really excited that this is out. I'm so excited that it's so good, and I just can't wait for more. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Reservation Dogs, go see it. Um, Watch it. Yes, I also wanted to shout out um, another Indigenous uh, thing. Uh, it's a podcast, um, and it is called. Oh, this land. The pod is back. And it's a um, the crime is white supremacy. Everybody. It's a investigative journalism <laughs> case. It's a true so, crime. Yeah, news news flash. <laughs> white supremacy is very evil and bad. Uh, but this season, it dives into an investigation about how a string of custody battles over native children has become a federal lawsuit that threatens. Oh, wow. It's threatening everything for, uh, from uh, tribal sovereignty to civil rights. Wow! Um, and the case is ongoing, so you can listen to the pod, find out more, and follow right. the case. Again, that's uh, Reservation Dogs and This Land. What do you have, Beth?
2: Well, Untold on Netflix is a five-part docu series mm-hmm. with sports themes. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't, I don't care for sports, Spjorts. but. Yeah, Spiorts, <laughs> but the the stories these stories are fascinating. Yeah, um, the first one is called Malice in the Palace, and it's about a brawl that broke out during a Pacers Pistons basketball game. Do you remember where you were
1: when no, it happened? No, oh. because I
2: don't follow Spiorts. <laughs> <laughs> but it was all the news. Yeah, I vaguely remember hearing about it, but you know, it's like, oh, okay. And then I moved on. Oh man. (laughs) Yeah. So it was a a brawl that broke out between, uh, the two teams and the fans. So (laughs) Uh, boy, (laughs) oh boy,
1: Detroit, the, in, in 2020 glasses, what the players did would not be considered wrong. They were at work and they were attacked by racist entitled white people who are drunk. (laughs) And the comments after we say the news is racist. That's all I could, I could not stop repeating that to myself in my head when watching that one. I don't know
2: how many times they said thugs. Whoa, I know. Jesus. Yeah. (laughs) It was terrible. Yeah. But anyway, uh, the second episode is called Deal with the Devil. And that's about Christy Martin, a female boxer whose husband tried to kill her. What? (laughs) Yeah. Whoa. So. You get the idea oh my uh, these god are all good stories and by the time this this episode drops i think all five episodes should be out the the weird thing about it though is that they're not all gathered together in one place like it's not untold and then a whole bunch of episodes you have to find them separately so just search untold in netflix and you should be able to find them oh wow weird netflix okay i know it's a kind of a weird thing i i was reading about it and i think what they said was the idea was they're each supposed to be like standalone documentaries okay but i think it would be better if they had them all in one place well i'm
1: going to tell you i had no idea it was five parts i thought it was just about malice in the palace no there's five of them well you have open my eyes this has been <laughs> illuminating thank you i can't wait You're so that's welcome. untold on netflix yeah okay untold on netflix reservation dogs and this land and uh
2: well, look at that that's it for today
1: uh, but we'll be back in the meantime beth where can the people find us
2: Our website is FruitLoopsPod.com Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod and links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App or you can become a monthly patron through Podbean This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting There's no minimum and no commit Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website.
1: That's right. Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.